If you guys have a Bible, uh, why don't you open it up? Uh, we're going to be in Galatians 2 today. We're going to read the whole chapter and then um, see what God has to say to it, say to us. So, Galatians 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. So this is Paul talking. This time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among, among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on, our, on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We didn't give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his, in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I say that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, when I saw, sorry, that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also amongst the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live, in, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Let's pray. Father, we believe that this is your word. We believe that your word is true, that your word is powerful, that your word always goes out amongst us, works in our hearts, and does exactly what you have planned. So God, this morning, would you do that again amongst us? Amen. Um, 
There are, there are two types of people in the world when it comes to hiring house cleaners. There, there are three, actually. There's one group that doesn't hire house cleaners. But forget about them for a minute. There are two types of people who do hire house cleaners. This is what the first group does. Their house is a mess. They have no time to clean it. They go online, they find a cleaner, they hire them. The cleaner comes and cleans the house. Done. Now, you're probably thinking, Noah, that's the only way to hire a house cleaner. But you would be wrong. Because there's another group. There's a different type of person who hires a house cleaner. It starts pretty much the same. Their house is a mess. They have no time. They go online. They find a cleaner. They hire them. But what do they do before the cleaner comes? They clean. The very thing they needed someone else to do because they didn't have time, they then do. And secretly, the hope is that the cleaner will come in and say, my, 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 this is the cleanest house I've seen in my career. You don't need me at all. Why do they clean? Because they don't want the cleaner to think that this is how they live all the time. But the cleaner knows that because you hired them to clean. They assume there will be a mess that they then need to use their skills to clean. And actually, usually, you, you think you've cleaned up perfectly, but the cleaner is able to see all of this grime and dirt that you weren't able to get to. Paul is talking about those people today. Those who hire a cleaner, but then try to do all of the cleaning themselves before the cleaner actually comes. See, in the Galatian churches, there was this problem of um, Jewish converts, Jews who had become Christians, coming in and saying that to be justified, which just means to be in a relationship with God, you had to do all of these things first. Circumcision was one of them. Following dietary laws was another. Strict um, Sabbath observance. And Paul is desperate to get these churches to see that this isn't just a little mistake they're making, but it's a fundamental denial of the gospel. And that if they believe it, they're actually in danger of not being in a right relationship with God. And so in chapter 2 that we just read here, um, Paul tells us two stories to prove and kind of illustrate his point uh, before coming to the end, which we'll spend a bit more time on. So let's go over these two stories um, fairly quickly, because kind of like Paul, I'm pretty desperate to get to the main point that he uh, shows us at the end. So in verses 1 to 14, Paul tells us about two encounters he had with leaders from the Jerusalem church. These were men who held incredible influence as apostles. They had witnessed the, the resurrection themselves, but they also led one of the most influential churches of the time. So the first encounter that Paul has is a really positive one. God calls Paul to go to Jerusalem. Paul obeyed. He went and he wanted to make sure, it says he wanted to make sure he wasn't running in vain. Paul isn't going to them to check his theology. He's not going to make sure that he's got his facts right. But he wanted to make sure they were all on the same page because he knew that if, because he knew without their partnership, he was going to be working in vain. 
they held too much influence for him to be able to, to persuade people of the gospel if he didn't have their backing. And so again, the, the issue that he was, he was um, discussing with them, certain Jewish converts were coming in and saying that for non-Jews to be true Christians, they had to be circumcised, they had to eat like Jews, they had to observe the Sabbath and generally submit to all of the Old Testament laws. And this was kind of a recurring issue throughout the, the new church. What do we do with these non-Jews because they keep becoming Christians, but they're not following our rules? And so what do the apostles decide? Well, Paul actually brought along a, a test case. Um, he brings along Titus. Titus was not a Jew. He was uh, a Greek. He wasn't circumcised. And the apostles decide that no, Titus, and therefore no other Gentile, needs to be circumcised to be in right relationship with God. Phew. I don't think I've ever said circumcised so much in the space of like four minutes, but you're going to be hearing it a lot more. They decide that to require circumcision and any other adherence really to Mosaic law would be the same as enslaving people. Paul says that they were coming in and trying to make us slaves when actually faith in Christ brings freedom. And so they agree. The, the church in Jerusalem agree. And we then see that the apostles affirm Paul and Barnabas in their ministry and send them on their way. So, so far, so good. Everyone agrees. The theology is there. No need to follow Mosaic law if you want to be a Christian. But then Paul tells us about a different encounter he has. So in verses 11 to 14, Paul talks about a visit that Peter, when it says Cephas, it's a different name for Peter, when Peter came to Antioch. So this was a pioneer church planting church in Paul's ministry. A lot of Gentiles there, non-Jews that is. So Peter comes to see all that God is doing amongst them. And at first he gladly sits and eats with non-Jews. But then people from the Jerusalem church arrive and Peter fears and withdraws. It's actually quite reassuring, isn't it, that in the Gospels we see how often Peter is afraid. He's kind of like all in, and then the minute that there's confrontation, he, he fears. It's really reassuring that that continued. He still struggled with that. So Peter, along with the other Jews, separate themselves from the non-Jews. So most likely up until then, they'd been eating all sorts of things that Jews aren't really meant to eat, and they stop doing that. People from that church from Jerusalem come, and Peter probably imagines what they're thinking about him and what people back in Jerusalem would think of him, and he cuts himself off along with the other Jews, and they start to eat separately again. So does Paul see this and give Peter a little kind of private slap on the wrist? Does he quietly approach him after the meal and have a calm discussion? Yeah, Peter didn't like too much, didn't want to say in front of other people, but please don't do that again. No, he confronts him in front of everybody, telling him, you're a hypocrite. Peter had been enjoying freedom in Christ by eating with Gentiles, and now, because of fear, he cuts himself off. So Paul outs him in front of everybody. So the report back to Jerusalem was actually going to be a lot worse now, because not only did they find out he'd been eating with Gentiles, but then they find out that he was trying to cover it up as well. So it was just not going to go well for Peter. But could Paul not have been a bit more 
tactful in his approach. Gareth was, uh, brought that up last week, that Paul just doesn't seem to do the compliment sandwich, does he? It's not like nice thing, bad thing, nice thing. No, it's just like bad. All the way through. It just seems like he's gone into this letter, all guns blazing, very little understanding, very little sympathy, no tact at all. Why is he so worked up? And this is where we come to verse 15 and where I want to spend a bit more time. So some people believe Paul is still talking to Peter here. Others don't. It doesn't really matter, actually, for us. But Paul starts by affirming that he and Peter are um, Jews by birth. So this, in the Jewish mind, kind of set them apart. In their minds, that was enough for them to be good with God. They were born into a Jewish family, did all of the Jewish things. God was okay with them. And then Paul says, and we're not Gentile sinners. He's not being rude about Gentiles. He's simply mimicking, mocking what the Jews thought about non-Jews. We see this episode, actually, in uh, the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus tells the story of a Pharisee who stands up and loudly praises God that he's not like the other people, not like those non-Jews, not like those sinners, not like those tax collectors. So what's Paul actually doing? Paul is actually saying, Peter, you're a Pharisee. There's actually even possibly a play on words here in the passage where Paul, when he says that Peter cut himself off, he's possibly using a word that sounds like the word for Pharisee. He's saying, Peter, you're a Pharisee. Paul, in verse 16, Paul reminds Peter of what they had like doctrinally agreed on. They'd previously agreed in Jerusalem, you don't have to obey these laws to be a Christian. For someone to be in a relationship with God, all they need is faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul is repeating this back to Peter. And actually, a really interesting thing in this passage is that where it says, by faith in Jesus Christ... This can actually be translated as by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So we are saved by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Both translations are equally uh, fine. So this actually shows that we're not actually saved by our own faith in a sense. We're not saved by the intensity of our own faith, whether our faith is particularly strong that day or particularly weak that day. But we're saved by what Jesus Christ has already done on the cross in our place. We're saved by the fact that Jesus was faithful to God on our behalf as our representative before God. So how does someone have a right relationship with God? How can we know God, be friends with God, be children of God? What do we need to do? Well, Jesus has done it. He's obeyed the law, the very thing we couldn't do. He fulfilled all the do this and don't do that's, so that if we simply trust him, receive him as our savior, then we are children of God. And this is what Paul is so desperate to get through to them, not just for Peter to believe, but to actually live it out and to demonstrate it to others as well. In verse 17, so Paul continues his argument, and it starts to get a bit convoluted. Does anybody ever read Paul's letters and think, like, what are you, like, what are you saying? Like, sometimes you just think, like, Paul, could you not have, like, put a full stop once in a while? 
But he continues his argument here, and, and it, it does get a little bit convoluted, um, and so we do need to untangle what he's saying. Because Paul is exposing this, this faulty logic that the troublemakers in the Galatian church had. See, what they were saying is that if someone doesn't follow Mosaic law, then they are sinners because they're not doing what God commands. And if Paul believes that Jesus is okay with that, then Jesus approves of sin. And Paul completely rejects that. Why? I mean, on a certain level, it seems to make sense. It seems to be logical. You see, pre-Jesus, God had given his people many rules and laws to follow so that they can be in relationship with him. And along comes Paul and is strongly telling them that to require these things is contradicting what Jesus taught and did. And so Jesus, in their minds, in the troublemakers' minds, is kind of being presented as this, like, do whatever you want because I love you kind of guy. But Paul shows that their logic is completely wrong. So if we move on to verse 18, and this is all going to click into place soon, I promise. He says, if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. So what's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about the law. He's saying that if we were to try and return to living in accordance with the law, we would actually be the ones guilty of sin, not the ones who weren't observing the law anymore. Why? Well, because Paul will actually show later in Galatians that the primary reason for the law was to show our sin. See, God gave us the law, God gave his people the law partly to show his perfect nature and requirements and how nobody could actually attain those. Paul is saying that circumcision doesn't apply anymore. It's not a law anymore. The laws of Moses do not apply anymore if you want to be a believer. And so not doing them isn't sinful. The only sinners, and therefore the ones who, is, who the only sinners are the ones who put themselves back under the law because the law is there to reveal their sin. Does that make sense? It's a bit convoluted. <laughs> if we want to live a life of do this and don't do that, and then God might accept you, we will never measure up, and we will constantly be faced with our sins and our failures. And that's what the law did, and that's why Paul is so adamant that this cannot infiltrate the church. The law showed us how sinful we were by showing us how we couldn't fulfill all that God requires of us. But there is another way, and here comes Paul's main point. In verses 19 and 20, Paul says, for, though, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So what's the other way? We can die. We can die. Paul says here that we are crucified with Christ. And it's not us living anymore, it's Jesus living. And so what does that mean? Well, well, it means that when I put my faith in Jesus, I died. Noah the sinner, the, the enemy of God, died. Noah the slave to anger, Noah the slave to lust, Noah the slave to fear, Noah the slave to pornography, he died that day. 
All of that died. And it was the happiest funeral ever. No one attended. Not a tear in sight. And now the Noah before you, well, this is a different Noah. And here's the big truth. In God's eyes, this new Noah isn't that sinner anymore. This new Noah isn't that angry, fearful, lustful guy from before. So who is this new Noah? What does God see when he looks at this new Noah? Well, I want to tell you a story that a a pastor in America called David Platt uh, tells. It's an urban legend, debatable whether it's true or not, but it it illustrates um, the point pretty well. Um, So Rolls-Royce, brand of car. I'm an expert in cars, obviously. Um, And Rolls-Royce were kind of branded as the car that would never break down. Think Titanic, the unsinkable. Rolls-Royce, the cars that would never break down. You see where this is going. A Swedish man bought a Rolls-Royce and was driving it one day, and it broke down. And so his assistant, who was with him, had to walk three miles to go find a phone to phone up Rolls-Royce and say, it's broken down, what do we do? And what happened next is that, according to the story, they flew out an engineer, they flew out a new car, they arrived where the car had broken down, they put up a big tent around the car so nobody could see, they gave... They brought along the replacement car, gave it to him, he drove off, and then this other car, who knows what happened to it. A few months later, uh, this man um, phones up Rolls-Royce and says, uh, is there any use on my car? The replacement car's fine, but, but what, what about, you know, am I going to get the old one back or, or what? And on the phone, there's a bit of silence, and then they say, I'm sorry, sir, you must be mistaken, like, we have no record of this happening. And he said, are you joking? Like, you flew out to Sweden, you flew out a new car, you must remember this. Like, do I owe you money for the repairs? Like, what, how do we settle this? And again, they say, so you must be misremembering because that didn't happen. So Rolls-Royce cars do not break down. And he said, and he's getting more agitated. He says, yes, but they do break down because my car broke down. Don't you remember? You gave me a replacement car. And finally, they say, sir, you are not remembering correctly because that did not happen. We have no record of anything ever going wrong with your car. When God looks at me, when God looks at you, he says, Noah, I have no record of anything ever going wrong. I have no record of you ever doing anything wrong in your life, ever. But what about this? What about that time that I exploded in anger? What about that? Mm, Nope, nope, it's not written down here. What? No, 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 but you must remember this. Come on, God, everyone remembers that. No, no, it's not there. But I'm, I'm, I'm Noah, I'm that angry, fearful Noah. And God responds, hmm. No, it says here that angry, fearful Noah died on the 21st of October, 2007. He's dead. I don't know who you're talking about, because that guy died. When God looks at you, if you have put your faith in Jesus, he holds zero record of wrong. You are not a sinner by identity anymore. 
That's just not who you are anymore. Now, it'll take a lifetime to actually live that out, kind of picture a homeless orphan adopted into the family of a king. He's a son the, he's a son the day he's adopted, and yet it'll take him a lifetime to figure out what that looks like. But he's adopted on that day, and that can't change. You are no longer that old sinner, enemy of God. That's just not who you are anymore. That's just not who God sees when he looks at you. Your record of wrongdoings before God is a beautiful, clean, blank page. How? Well, verse 20 tells us, Jesus, who loves you, gave himself for you. Notice this happened before you became a believer. This was in the past. Jesus, who loved you, gave himself for you. You did absolutely nothing to make Jesus go to the cross. Actually, you did one thing. You sinned. That was your one contribution to Jesus going to the cross. Jonathan Edwards, who was an American um, pastor in the 18th century, uh, famously said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So that's our contribution to Jesus going to the cross. The rest is Jesus. We did nothing at all to contribute positively to our salvation. Jesus has done it all for us. We see it in Romans 5. Um, Paul says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's done it all. And if Jesus has done it all for us, then how could we possibly think that we could earn his love or earn his favor through any other means. If he loves us while we were still his enemies, still sinners, and gave his life for us, then why would he then recant his love and require us to work for it? You can do nothing at all to earn the love of God. Why? Because it's yours already. In verse 21, uh, Paul finishes um, with a really strong statement. He says, I don't set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And I want to spend a bit of time on this, because here we get the final answer to our question, why is Paul so worked up about this? You see, in the the theological world, there's this idea called the hierarchy of doctrines. What it basically means is that not not everything that we believe about the Bible holds equal importance. Everything in the Bible is important, but not everything is as important as everything else. There are really important things, and then there are other things that, while still important, are not quite as important. So it tends to be broken down into three categories. You have primary um, importance, secondary importance, and tertiary importance. Am I saying that tertiary? Is that right? Is that how you say that word? Tertiary things, doctrines would be things like what we believe about the end of times or practical questions like how do we run a church service, things like that that, you know, you 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 can do it different ways and it's okay. And we can live side by side. We can worship together. Secondary importance would be things like how we do baptism um, and other questions like that, which, again, they're not, 
they don't make you a Christian or not, but they hold a little more um, importance maybe and um, have some practical outworkings. That, And then there are primary doctrines. Paul actually talks about this in, in one of the letters to the Corinthians. He says, I deliver to you the things that are, that are of first importance. And these are things like salvation, what we believe about the Bible, who we believe God is. And these are things... Primary doctrines are those that if we get it wrong, then we're actually at risk of not being true believers. And to Paul, this is how serious this issue was. Because he tells the Galatians that if they want to add anything to Jesus, if they want to add any requirement to salvation apart from Jesus, then Jesus died for nothing. And that is what makes God's grace void. Grace isn't grace if we actually have to do something to work to earn it. Grace can't be transactional. And so the Galatians were tempted to believe that to be saved, it was a case of Jesus plus, or Jesus and this. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus not eating these things. Jesus plus other laws. And Paul is saying you can't have Jesus plus. You can't have Jesus and something else. Jesus makes the exclusive claim as savior in your life or he doesn't save you. He doesn't share that role with you or anyone or anything else. He doesn't share that role with circumcision. He doesn't share that role with confession. He doesn't share that role with speaking in tongues or membership to a political party, whatever it might be. He doesn't share that role. Jesus does not share the role of savior with anything else. It's Jesus only or it's Jesus not at all. Those are the options. So, quiz time. Orangefield is a safe place where we can be honest with each other. Men, which of you in this room feel an immense weight of guilt? You feel like you are such bad Christians because you're not circumcised. It's a safe place, hands up, no? Okay, good. Anyone in the room feel an immense weight of guilt because they ate pork last week? Good, great. So we might think, well, the whole discussion that Paul has here is really not for us today. But let me ask you this. Does anyone here feel that to be a really good Christian, they have to have daily quiet time with God? Anyone here ever feel really good about themselves because compared to someone else in Orange Fields, you, you just know deep down that you're a better person than them, that you're a better Christian? Anyone here feel immense guilt because compared to others, you feel like a terrible Christian? Anyone here feel that God must be so disappointed with them because they just can't get victory over that sin yet? Or anyone ever feel really good about themselves and that God in some way owes them something because you've managed to have victory over that sin? You see, these are all subtle ways of doing the exact same thing that the Galatians were doing. These are all subtle ways of saying, well, Christ died for nothing. Why? Because we're trying to earn God's acceptance, God's favor through something other than Jesus. Quiet time with God is good. Resisting sin is good, but if these are what you measure God's acceptance, God's favor of you by, it's evil and Christ died for nothing, is what Paul is telling us here. 
And so as we land, let me, um, let me address Christians first and then um, those of you who might not call yourselves Christians. So Christians, when Christ died, he took your place. He took all of your sin, your failures, your guilt, your pride, all of it, and brutally nailed it to the cross. And now that same Jesus lives in you by his spirit, which means that the love that God has for his son, Jesus, is the same love he has for you. John 17 tells us that God the Father loves us and delights in us as much as he loves his own son. Because that's whose achievements, that's whose record he sees when he looks at you. Is this the reality that you live in? Are you aware of that unconditional acceptance from the Father that he has given you? Are you aware of the truth that the same words the Father spoke to the Son in his baptism when he said, my Son in whom I am well pleased, those apply to you because it's Christ who lives in you now. Because that's what Paul is telling us here. And contrary to Paul's opponents, this truth doesn't lead to a life full of sin. It actually leads to a life of joyful obedience to Christ and becoming more and more like him. You're free. You're not a slave to sin. You're not a slave to God's righteous requirements anymore. You're not a slave to your own standards, which you fail to meet all the time anyway. You are free. Live free. And again, this will take a lifetime of us learning, but we are free. Breathe. And then maybe uh, you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Um, And unfortunately, in the church, there's been a picture of Jesus painted, which is exactly what Paul is trying to destroy. Going to do this and do that, and God will love you. And if you don't, well, then God is super angry with you. And this leads to all sorts of twisted, judgmental, narcissistic, hypocritical attitudes from Christians that you might have experienced. Please see through this to the real Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you on the cross so that you could have a relationship with God. You can come as you are. You don't have to clean your house before the cleaner comes. See, we all live by a certain set of standards, a certain way that we think makes us good people, or maybe even better people than others. And yet, none of us can live up to our own standards. None of us can live up to the standards of others. None of us can live up to the expectations we have of ourselves or of others, or the standards that God has set. None of us can. And if we're honest, trying to measure up to our own standards or the standards of others is exhausting, is crippling. There is freedom. Jesus gave himself for you. He met God's very own standards as your representative. And all you have to do is trust him. Trust that he has fulfilled this requirement for you. You can be free. In Jesus, you can be free. Free and loved and accepted by God. 
And better yet, Jesus will actually make you a better person. But not so that you're acceptable to God, but in response to God's unending, unconditional love for you. He will lead you into joyful obedience to God. So if this is you, whether you're a Christian or not, because this can really apply to anybody, if you are tired of trying to measure up, of striving for, for acceptance from God, from others or even yourself, die, give up, and be brought back to life as a new person in Jesus. I'm going to leave, leave um, just some, a, couple minutes of, a couple minutes of quiet just as the band comes up again, but we'll, we'll just stay silent for a minute or so. And if you feel that God is speaking to you in some way, the Spirit is, is kind of putting his finger on certain areas of your life where you are trying to strive in order that God would put his favor on you, would you pray that the Spirit would just overwhelm you with that sense of God's favor, of God's love, of God's acceptance, that you would know and you would know that you are a child of God. And if you're not a believer, then take this time to think over what has been said this morning. Maybe even ask God to reveal himself to you, to show himself as this loving, as this perfect as this caring father. And then we'll um, sing um, together to finish. So let's take a, a moment. Father, you love us because of Jesus. You don't love us because of anything that we can do or uh, anything else that we have the power to do. You love us because of your son, and you love us with the same love that you have for Jesus. So God, would you, um, by your spirit, convince and persuade each one of us of your unending, unconditional love and delight for us, and that that would be, that would lead us into a life of obedience. God, would you destroy that sense in us that we have to strive in some way to be accepted by you. We pray that we would be overwhelmed by your love and your favor that rests on us and that will rest on us forever. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.